1 Samuel 29 and verse number 1. Then the Philistines gathered together all their armies at Aphek, and the Israelites encamped by a fountain which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines passed in review by hundreds and by thousands. But David and his men passed in review at the rear with Achish. Then the princes of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the prince of the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me these days or these years? And to this day, I have found no fault in him since he defected to me or deserted to me. But the princes of the Philistines were angry with him. So the princes of the Philistines said to him, make this fellow return, that he may go back to the place which you have appointed for him. And do not let him go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become our adversary. For with what could he reconcile himself to his master, if not with the heads of these men? Is this not David of whom they sang to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Then Achish called David and said to him, Surely, as the Lord lives, you have been upright, and you're going out and you're coming in with me, and the army is good in my sight. For to this day I have not found evil in you since the day of your coming to me. Nevertheless, the lords do not favor you. Therefore return now and go in peace that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. So David said to Achish, but what have I done? And to this day, what have you found in your servant as long as I have been with you that I may not Go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king. Then Achish answered and said to David, I know that you are as good in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the princes of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to battle. Now therefore rise early in the morning with your master's servants who have come with you. And as soon as you are up early in the morning and have light, depart So David and his men rose early to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Well, the last time that Saul and David spoke to each other, which would end up being their final time, uh, Saul was extremely confident in his expression toward David that God would indeed deliver him from all his troubles. You'll find that final conversation in chapter 26 of 1 Samuel. And of course, David has certainly been experiencing a lot of trouble, most of which has been the result of Saul's insatiable desire to kill him. However, this most recent trouble that David finds himself in is a mess of his own making. For as soon as that conversation took place, a conversation that occurred because God had once again delivered David from Saul, David started experiencing a quick and sudden battle of the mind. We read about that in chapter 27. We see him stressed and tired and 
anxious, and as a result, he's convinced himself that he is going to die by the hand of Saul, no matter what he does, and no matter how far he runs and hides. So he decides that the best thing for him to do is to go over into enemy territory and there hide from Saul by keeping company with the Philistines. And to our surprise, King Achish of Gath, yes, that same town by which Goliath held from, allowed David and his men to come. Along with their families, not only did he allow them to come, but he actually gave them a small little country town where they could live. But the entire situation that we read in chapter 27, it had come together because of David's deception. He had deceived Achish into believing that David was now his forever servant. He had also deceived Achish about the towns he was pillaging during those 16-month stays or during this 16-month stage. Achish thought that David had destroyed people in Israel when in reality, David and his men had been busy taking out Israel's enemies. And to make sure that his story wasn't ever uncovered, David went to extreme measures when he went to these towns. He took out every single soul, not leaving a single person alive, just in case word would have ever gotten back to Achish of what David was really doing. And so David's cunning and clever ways worked. For by the time that we get to the end of 1 Samuel 27, King Achish truly believes I mean, he is really convinced that David has burned every bridge back to Israel, leaving no possibility for Israel to ever welcome him back as king or as citizen. Not only that, but we also discover that Achish has made David his chief Guardian, that, that in the event of war, David and his men would be the ones to protect him. This whole thing is a, is a mess. But it's important that we see this perspective of David. We've looked at this already over and over again, but it's important that we remind ourselves again that David was a sinner like us. He had the same nature that we have. He too, like all the other heroes of the Bible, except of course Jesus, got himself into trouble, into a mess. The same kind of trouble and mess that you and I often get ourselves into. That was the whole content of our study in chapter 27, that he had a nature like ours, that he sinned like we do, and we sin like he did. I quoted this in the message a couple of weeks ago, but it's so good that I feel like it's important just to bring it to our attention once again here at the outset of our message tonight. Ralph Davis said, the Bible does not claim that God's servants are dipped in Clorox so that they will be infallibly sin-free and attractive to us. The living God does not have clean material to work with. It's only sinful clay that the potter works with. That includes David, 
That includes me, and that includes you. Sinclair Ferguson, in his book, Devoted to God, said it is always a shock to our pride when we discover that we are sinners, not merely people who occasionally sin. I want you to think about that tonight. It is always a shock to our pride when we discover we are sinners. Sinners. Not just people who occasionally sin. Yes, we have been saved from sin's penalty. And one day we will be saved from sin's presence. But we are right now still being saved. We are still being saved from the power of sin. We are sinners saved by grace. That's what we are. We are sinners saved by grace. And what we find here is David in his sinful ways having made an extreme mess of this entire situation. Have you ever found yourself in a mess and wondered, how did I get here? only to discover that it was you who brought all this trouble onto yourself. David is making a discovery that every believer must discover in their life. And that discovery is that my biggest problem is me. Laurel's biggest problem is me. My family's biggest problem is me. My biggest problem is me. And David is having to learn that. It's an important lesson that he does learn before he takes the throne that God has given to him. It's a discovery that you need to come to. Of how quick and easy it is to blame everybody else for the messes that we are in. To blame the world for the troubles that we are engaged in. And the true reality of it is, is that we are our biggest issue. We are our biggest problem. Jesus, Jesus said that clearly in the New Testament as he taught his disciples that it is not that which is on the outside that defiles a man. It's that which is on the inside that comes out of him that is defiling. We can lock ourselves up in a room for the next 10 years all by ourselves with no interaction, no electronics, no people, and we still will not have escaped from our biggest problem because our biggest problem lies within ourselves, our sinful hearts, our depraved being. That is why a man such as David gets himself into this mess. And he continues to discover this because this situation that he puts himself in grows from bad to worse. And what's, what's interesting here is that David has, be, has been delivered over and over again, hasn't he? He's been delivered from Saul. He's been delivered from Philistines. He's been delivered from Amalekite. I mean, he's been delivered over and over again. But now he needs to be delivered from himself. This is a terrible situation. He's in a mess. In fact, let's look at it. I've only got really two points here that I want to show you in, 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 in the terms of an outline, but then I want to give you some practical things to think about as we close this up here in just a little while. Number one, David's mess. That's the first thing I wrote down. David's mess, his mess. Look at verse one. Then the Philistines gathered together all their armies at Aphek, and the Israelites encamped by a fountain which is in Jezreel. 
So after having spent some time with Saul and the witch of Endor last week, verse 1 reminds us of the predicament that we left David in at the beginning of 1 Samuel 28. The Philistines had gathered together for war against Israel. Achish goes and gets David and says, look, you and your men are coming with me to fight against Israel. So now David has a new problem. We left that off in verse 2 of 1 Samuel 28. If David goes, he's a dead man by the hand of Israel. If he refuses to go, he's a dead man by the hand of Achish. The mess that David made, it just gets messier and messier. What is he going to do? And that is when the author here moves the camera, if you will, from David's predicament and shows us Saul's issue with the witch of Endor. Now he's come back here in chapter 29 to show us how all of this is going to unfold. Now, let me tell you, this was no small campaign by the Philistines. Verse 1 tells us that the Philistines had brought, notice this, all their armies together for battle. They have not left anyone behind. And we already know that Saul is terrified out of his mind. We looked at that last Wednesday night as we see him running to the witch of Endor, just trying to get somebody to tell him what to do. So in terms of strategy and strength, the Philistines here seem to have the upper hand. And that is exactly why we see here in verse 2, the lords of the Philistines. Who were these lords of the Philistines and what are they doing there? Well, these were the five kings or the five rulers of the Philistine cities. Achish was just one of those five. And as we will see here in a moment, he appears to be at the bottom of the totem pole, so to speak. Now, this is such a big campaign, such a, such a huge deal that all five of these kings and rulers show up. And when the rulers and commanders of the armies come and see David and his 600 men with Achish, they said in verse 3, look at it, what are these Hebrews doing here? Well, this is not a welcoming question, by the way. It was not, oh, what are these Hebrews doing here? This is great. I couldn't imagine a better scenario than, than, than the people we hate the most to come here and help us take out Israel. This is wonderful. Would you guys like a cup of coffee, maybe a donut before we go knock some heads off? No, this, was, this was not a warm greeting whatsoever. No, this was, this was asked in derision. What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish attempts to defend the presence of David. Look at it. Don't don't, don't take my word for it. Look at it there in your Bibles, verse 3. He says, is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me these days or these years? And to this day I have found no fault in him since he defected to me. Well, there's several things that we see happening in verse number 3. I see a sad note on David's situation. He's become now known as a deserter. It's exactly how Achish identifies him. Since he deserted Israel, since he deserted Saul, he he has come to me. And and then when we read that, it it seems here, at least from my perspective, maybe I'm reading this wrong, but it seems that Achish is parading the fact that David has become his servant. He's deserted Saul, and he's come to me. He's deserted Israel, and he's come to work and fight with me. He even exaggerates the length of time David had been with him. Did you notice that there? 
He says, hasn't he been here with me for years? He hasn't been there with him for years. 16 months at the most, at minimal 14, that's it. So, so, so he seems to be trying to show up the rest of his councilmen, if you will, the other king. Look, he didn't come to you, he came to me. And we've been together a long time, you know. But even in this exaggeration, the point that Achish is trying to make to his other friends, his colleagues, is that, look, David's fine. David's fine. Trust me. He's the real deal. I have found no fault in him whatsoever. Now, of course, we know that Achish has been sorely duped by David, hasn't he? And it's becoming more and more obvious that King Achish was an extremely gullible figure. I mean, let's just retrace our steps for just a moment. This is the same Achish who believed that David was a madman all the way back in 1 Samuel 22. When David pretended to be crazy in order to escape death. Achish said, this guy's out of his mind. He's lost his mind. He's a madman. He's crazy. And then he he lets him go. Now he is fully bought into David's deception. But what's clear to me is that Achish is the only one who's bought into that. Doesn't seem to be the knifest or the sharpest knife in the drawer, you know? Verse 4, look at it. But the princes of the Philistines, they were angry with Achish. And they said, are you kidding me? Make this fellow return that he may go back to the place which you have appointed for him. And do not let him go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become our enemy. For with what? Could he reconcile himself to his master? Speaking of Saul, how is he going to reconcile himself to the Saul unless he does so with the heads of these men, these Philistines? After all, is this not David of whom they sang to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousand? It seems to me that these other kings, these leaders, seem to have far more sense than Achish does. They took David's reputation seriously. Achish, have you forgotten the song that they wrote and they kept on singing over and over and over again? I mean, it was number one on the charts in Israel. We we couldn't go anywhere without hearing it over and over again. Saul is slain his thousands, but David is ten thousands. We're tired of that song. Did you forget about that song, Achish? After all, they were singing it about us. Did you forget all the deaths? That David brought upon our people? You see, these other four men, they, they took David's reputation seriously. And they also saw the advantage that David could gain by turning on them in the middle of the battle. He says, how else is he going to reconcile to Saul? In other words, they knew, they knew that if there was any remote possibility that David actually could reconcile with Saul, that it would have to be done by bringing back the heads of Philistines. The response to Achish, absolutely not. He's not going with us. No, Achish, you've messed up on this one. Send him back. You're foolish to have him here. He could turn on us. David's mess. But this turns in quickly and secondly to God's mercy. God's mercy. Achish, then after... Receiving this news goes back to David. Look at it in verse 6. Surely as the Lord lives. Interesting note there. He's a pagan. 
Surely as the Lord lives, you have been upright and you're going out and you're coming in with me and the army is good in my sight. For to this day, I've not found evil in you since the day of your coming to me. Nevertheless, the Lord's don't like you. I like you, David, but they don't like you. I voted for you, but I got outvoted. They want you to go back. So go on back. Return now. Go in peace that you may not displease the Lord of the Philistines. And David had done such a good job at deceiving Achish that Achish could find no fault in him. And now he even uses the name of God to show his feelings about David. As the Lord lives, I know. You've been upright and honest in your coming in and out with me. Now, interestingly enough, this is the only time God's name is used in the entire chapter. And I find it fascinating that it's being used from the mouth of a pagan. David hasn't mentioned him. In fact, David hasn't mentioned God in a long time. Which may be the very reason why he's in the mess that he's in. Because at the beginning of chapter 27, David starts relying on himself. He starts trying to figure out things for himself. Instead of praying to God, instead of seeking the Urim, instead of reaching out to the priest to find out what God would have him to do. He just, he just puts all of that to the side and does his own thing. And now look at the mess that he's in. He's not calling out to God, but the pagan is, ironically. Now you would think that David would see this as the answer to his predicament, right? The other four kings don't want him there. And so they tell Achis, send David back, all right? And this is all fixed, right? David's in a mess. He doesn't know what to do. He's going to die either way. And now, now they're giving him a free pass to get out of it. Go back home. Go peacefully. You don't have to be here. We'll take care of all of this. So what we expect to see David do when we come to verse number 8 is quietly walk away. Whew. Man. That was close. I saw myself as a dead man today. I cannot believe that they're sending me back. This is, this is unbelievable. Come on, fellas, pack up your staff. Let's get back before they change their minds. Oh, but he doesn't do that at all. It's actually quite, quite strange. Because look at what he does in verse number 8. He says to Achish, but what have I done? What have I done? By the way, David likes to ask that question a lot. Remember when, it, when, it, remember when his brothers got all over his back the day that Goliath was standing in the valley and David shows up and says, who, who is this guy? And his brothers look at him and say, go back home, David. You're wasting your time. David says, what have I done? What have I done? And the same thing to Saul. He and Saul in their confrontations with one another. What, what have I done, Saul? And now to Achish. Achish says to David, look, we don't need you here. I wanted you. They don't want you. Just go peacefully. Go, go back to Ziklag. Why? What, what have I done? Look, David is so good. He is so good at being clever that it's even hard for us to see what he's up to. Why are you asking that, David? Why don't you just go back? You're in a mess. It seems like the mess has been resolved. 
Why are you trying to drag this out? Look at what he goes on to say in verse 8. To this day, he says this to Achish, what have you found in your servant as long as I have been with you that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord the King? Deceiving Achish into believing that David was his servant was part of David's plan. We know that clearly. Our difficulty as Bible students is that we don't know the rest of David's plan. What is he getting at here? What is he trying to do by dragging this out? There may be, there may be a clue here. And, and, I, and I throw it to you just for you to think about yourselves. Maybe read it on a little further tonight. David uses the phrase at the end of the verse, verse 8, but what have you found in your servant that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord the King? My Lord the King. He uses that phrase to speak about his willingness to go and fight his king's enemies. Now, here's the question. As the clever man that he is, and Saul knew that he was clever. He said, you got to watch out for that guy. There's no one, no one more clever than David. He's so clever. He's so cunning. Was David actually referring to King Saul while using verbiage that caused Achish to think he was actually talking about him? He doesn't use Achish's name here. He doesn't use Saul. He's not blowing his cover. He just simply says to them, what have I done? What have you seen in me that you're not going to let me go fight against the enemies of my Lord the King? Now, the way you study that little phrase about 1 Samuel, you'll find that David always referred to Saul with such attribute. He always referred to Saul as my Lord the King. My Lord the King. My Lord, the king. You see, Achish, perhaps, thought he was referring to him. But is it possible that a part of David's plan, he was actually referring to Saul? After all, in all this deception, David never once betrayed Israel. He betrayed Achish, but he never betrayed Israel. He never betrayed Saul, not one time while in the land of Philistia. He has maintained his faithfulness toward all of them. And if this is what David meant, then David's plan all along was to go with the Philistines and then at some point, at the right moment, turn against them. This is why he's not walking away quietly. But what David didn't know is that God had another plan altogether. Look at verse 9. And Achish answered and said to David, David, I, I know that you are as good in my sight as an angel of God. Man, David is good, isn't he? He has got Achish so deceived that now he's referring to him as an angel of God. He's so deceived. It's the same thing you, you call your kids. Isn't he an angel? No, he's not an angel. He's deceived you. David has deceived Achish. He's so good. He's so good. He's been so good that Achish thinks he's an angel. Nevertheless, he says, the princes of the Philistines have said, he shall not go with us to battle. Now, therefore, rise early in the morning with your master's servants who have come with you. 
And as soon as you are up early in the morning and have light, depart. And so here it is, David and his men, they rose early to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, which was the direction of the south from where they were. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel, the direction of the north. They're, they're now going in totally opposite directions. It's fascinating to me because David, one, was delivered out of his mess. We see that here. God came to him even in his foolishness and provided a way of an escape. He delivered him out of his mess. But not only that, David was kept away from the very battle that would end Saul's life. Now, we we already know that's going to happen. If you missed it last week, you're going to have to go back and, and, and watch it and study it again. The witch of Endor, Samuel coming back, telling him, this time tomorrow you're going to be with me. In other words, you and your sons, you're, you're, going, you're going to die. So this is going to be the battle that's going to take Saul's life. And God has orchestrated it to ensure that David is not near when this happens. And the other interesting thing here is that David was blocked by God for any potential plan on his part to save Israel. If indeed that was what he was planning Because part of what Samuel was also articulating to Saul was not only are you and your sons going to die, but God God is going to give the Philistines the victory here over Israel. So to make sure David doesn't interfere with that in his providence, in his sovereignty, he, he, he makes sure that David is not anywhere near to try to stop God's plan. It's always fascinating how God is working together behind the scenes, putting everything in a way that we don't even know, we don't even know or realize. It was more than just David being delivered. It was making sure that all of God's other purposes were carried out. So when we look at this, do we say divine deliverance or lucky break? Of course, as God-fearing people who understand who God is in terms of his character and how he works in this world. This is no lucky break. This is divine deliverance. Divine deliverance. And you look and you say, Pastor, what in the world does this chapter have to do with the church? What does this have to do with me? Three things I want you to observe with me as we close this out. And I I wrote these here in my notes, and perhaps you can write them down in yours and just meditate and think about this as you go back and reread chapter 29. All right, here's the first thing I want you to think about. The first observation is this. God was quiet but obvious. All right? God was quiet but obvious. You see, the surprising mark of God's deliverance in chapter 29, as we've already noted, is that it says nothing about God's deliverance. Without Achish's reference to God, there would be no mention of God at all in this chapter. Yet, he's obvious. He's obvious. As the undercurrent of an ocean, God is always present in our lives. And he is always working to fulfill his every purpose for us. And let me just apply this very personally tonight. 
Because you may feel as if God is quiet in your life right now. But that doesn't mean he's not there. He may be quiet, but I guarantee you this, he's there. You may not can see it, but he is the undercurrent of your life who is working the ins and outs of the waves that he desires to manifest itself in your life. Sometimes in our lives, God is very loud, but a whole lot of the time, he's very quiet. But even when he's quiet, look and see that it is obvious he is working all things together for his purpose to them who love him. Listen to me tonight. God is never, he is never a bystander in the affairs of our life. Never. It does not matter what is going on. It doesn't matter what is unfolding, what is transpiring. He is never a bystander in your life. He has never been a bystander in this church. And he has never been a bystander in this world. His hand is involved in everything. Everything that you're facing right now. His hand is involved in it. Everything that is going on in this world, yes, even in COVID-19, he is involved in it all. He's not a bystander. I think one of the biggest surprises that we will face when we get to glory is when God reveals to us just how much he did that even we detest. God is quiet, but he is also obvious. And so it is as we watch the news, as we see things trans, trans, uh, unfolding before us, we're reminded that though we may not sense him, feel him, perhaps even see him or hear him, we know that he is working all the pieces exactly where he wants them to be. First Samuel 29, God was quiet but obvious. I wrote down number two here. God was working but in surprising ways. God was working but in surprising ways. We've seen this often in the scriptures, don't we? In fact, we recently talked about it with Rahab. What instruments did God choose to use to deliver his servant David out of the mess that he had made for himself? Well, he used the enemy. He used the Philistine lords to bring salvation to David, to bring deliverance from his mess. We see that with Rahab. God used a lady of the night to save Israel and to bring them victory in Jericho. All throughout the scripture, we see God working, and it often surprises us what he is doing. It's a reminder that we can't put God in a box, can we? He has an infinite number of ways to do his work, an infinite number of ways to do it. And sometimes how he goes about it can very much be surprising to us. God used the enemy. God used the Philistines to deliver David out of his mess. 
we need not quickly to forget these wonderful truths that we find in the Bible, such as Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart. Think about how this applies even to Achish and the other lords of the Philistines. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Yes, wherever God wishes, that's what the heart of the king does. That's what the heart of the president does. That's what the heart of leaders do. Whatever God wants, he moves it wherever he desires them to be. That's why Paul wrote in Romans chapter 11, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways are past finding out. The story is told about a Christian woman who was alone and out of food. She had been praying to God fervently and asking him for provision. Somehow and neighbor who happened to be an agnostic or atheistic overheard her praying one day outside of her door. And so he decided that in her trial, he would provoke her about her foolish belief in God. So he went and purchased two loaves of bread. And he left them at her door. Now, when she came home and discovered the bread, she burst into grateful prayer and praise, thanking God for answering her prayer and providing the food and provision that she had sought him for. But her neighbor aggressively approached and mocked her and asserted that she should recant her praise to God, for it was he, not a divine source, that bought her the bread and placed it at the door. God didn't do this for you. I did this for you. But this Christian woman was quick. And here's how she responded. She said, oh, yes, it was the Lord who answered my prayer, even though he used the devil to do it. God's ways are often surprising, isn't it? We can't put God in a box. We can't. Give him counsel on how he chooses to orchestrate his purposes. He does it how he wants. And here's David in a mess. And he doesn't send godly people to deliver him. He uses the enemy to deliver him. God's deliverance of David, it was more than just about David. It was about the fulfillment of his plan to bring Jesus into the world through the line of David. Showing us that God will use whomever he chooses and whatever he chooses to fulfill his ultimate purposes. And then I wrote this third thing down. God was quiet, yes, but obvious. God was working, but in surprising ways. Thirdly, God was merciful toward his servant's foolishness. God was merciful toward his servant's foolishness. You know, the mercy of God is tenacious, isn't it? It's, it's inexhaustible. He, he's not short-tempered with us. Even when we choose foolish roads to Philistia, which is exactly what David did. This was a mess of his making. He chose to go over into enemy territory. He's the one who created this trouble for himself. But even when we choose foolish roads to Philistia, God is patient. He is merciful. 
And he is ever so committed to delivering us out of our messes. That's what I'm reminded of when I see this. David didn't deserve deliverance. But God in his tenacious, inexhaustible mercy gave it to him. You see, God doesn't cast you off in your foolishness. Aren't you grateful for that tonight? That when we are foolish, when we fail, when sin creeps up over and over again, when we make messes of our own making, when we get ourselves into trouble that we are fully responsible for, God doesn't always leave us alone and say, hey, it's up to you to figure this out. No, no, no. He doesn't cast us off. Our stupidity never evaporates His mercy. David's mess met the mercy of God. David's mess met the mercy of God. And perhaps this scene is what he had in mind when he wrote Psalms 23. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. It doesn't matter how many messes I make, how many times I get my life into trouble, where I find myself to be, God has proven, He has proven that every day of my life, His mercy and His goodness, it it pursues me. And it always makes a path for me to return back to Him. How wonderful it is that God chooses to use even those who are opposed to us in order to bring about his mercy. That when, like David, I have made a mess, and it is a mess of my own doing, I find that I have a heavenly Father who doesn't abandon me. He doesn't treat me as my sins deserve. The fact is, as we've already known, that David needed saving from himself. He needed to be delivered from him. And so do you. And so do I. And it is the divine favor and mercy of God that pursues and rescues us when we need it the most. When it is we, when it is me that needs to be saved from me. Thanks be to God that our stupidity never evaporates his mercy. And in our foolishness, he doesn't abandon us. But his mercy towards you is tenacious. It is inexhaustible. And whatever mess you're in tonight, if you will lift your eyes to heaven, you will see God and his mercy shine forth again. Divine deliverance or lucky break? Well, God's people understand this clearly. Divine deliverance. Let's stand together for prayer.